Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. Our third speaker today is Father Linus Clovis, and he will address the key issue, why be a Catholic, when the Catholic Church appears to be going through a period of great crisis and chaos. I'm sure you agree, and it was echoed by one or two of the, the, the audience, that we desperately need these days clergy with both brains and backbone. Now, Father Clovis fulfills that requirement pretty well. He was ordained by Pope John Paul II, and he was no slouch at standing up against communist tyranny. And he once also, Father Clovis, he once also told the head of uh, St. Lucia's government, in fact, head of state, I think she was, that if she ever, ever approached Father Clovis for Holy Communion, after supporting abortion in public. He would refuse, point black, to give it to her. You can understand what his situation is over there, ladies and gentlemen. So, let's bring in Father Clovis. Thank you very much for the introduction. Good afternoon, brothers, sisters, and reverend fathers. I've been asked to speak about the church in crisis. Why should we remain Catholic? I begin by, of course, defining a crisis. Because if we don't know what we're talking about, it's very difficult to find a solution. By definition, a, a crisis is a time of intense difficulty of trouble, of danger. It's a decisive point when a difficult or important decision has to be made. Medically, it's a turning point in a condition where the changes occur that signify either recovery or death. The church is in crisis, and as um, Gabrielle told us, it has always been in crisis, because each moment there are decisions to be made. The Catholic Church today, in her human element, has been in a state of open and manifest crisis for the better part of 50 years. For Paul VI, within five years of the close of the Second Vatican Council, lamented that the Church finds herself in a state of self-destruction. And then 10 years later, he bewailed that through some crack, the smoke of Satan has entered the church of God. There is doubt, uncertainty, problems, unrest, dissatisfaction, and confrontation. I think Pope Francis could say exactly the same thing today. Like a cancer, the crisis has developed and metastasized extensively uh, that it has enveloped all sections of the church. 
The clarity of faith is shrouded in darkness. Its doctrinal certainties are openly questioned. Catholic morality, if not ignored, is played down. Catechetics is in shambles. The liturgy, once described as the most beautiful thing this side of heaven, resembles a campsite sing-along. And in the Caribbean, it is really bad. The sacred tradition to which St. Paul instructs us to hold fast has been jettisoned, and the sacred scriptures are being reinterpreted to suit a brave new world. And I can continue the list, but we are all aware of the problem. While the destructive work of doctrinal aberrations is for the most part hidden, the moral aberrations are as open as festering sores. In 2002, the malignancy of the crisis was exposed by the Boston Globe's revelation of homosexual predation perpetrated by, on teenage boys by Catholic priests and the subsequent cover-up of those crimes by their bishops. Casting a dark shadow of the last thousand days of Pope John Paul II's pontificate, this so-called pedophile scandal appeared to have been addressed by various protocols which bishops had put in place. Within the past year, however, further revelations show that the protocols themselves are cover-ups for a more virulent malignancy of a deeply embedded moral corruption. Not only are bishops accused of perverse sexual behavior involving boys and young men, but also cardinals, the princes of the church, are incriminated, and this on a global scale, with unrefuted accusations of complicity being leveled even at the throne of Peter. Added to the soup is the financial malfeasance at the Vatican Bank, the police-busted cocaine-fueled homosexual orgies on Vatican territory, and the papal denunciation of sexual slavery of nuns. The mixed, confused, and incongruous papal pronouncements do nothing to help settle the nervous flock, who can smell not only the presence of the wolf, but with shenanigans of sham synods and episcopal meetings are now able to see for themselves ravenous wolves dressed in shepherd's clothing. As new revelations deepen and exacerbate the crisis, the faith of the little ones is shaken. The nature of the crisis. The crisis the church faces is essentially a crisis of faith. Something already noted 40 years ago in Pope Paul VI's lament. He said, the church is no longer trusted we trust the first pagan prophet we see who speaks to us in some newspaper, and we run behind him and ask him if he has a formula for true life. I repeat, doubt has entered our conscience, and it entered through the windows that should have been open to the light. Pope Francis could say exactly the same thing today. Under Paul VI, the church faced a massive exodus of her priests and religious. <coughs> Today, she faces the exodus of the laity, which is nothing less than an apostasy 
whose genesis was identified in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI in his reflections on the ninth station of the way of the cross. In those reflections, he invited us to relate the fall of Christ to our own spiritual blindness, if not malice. These include the falling away into godless secularism, the abuse of his sacramental presence, the empty and evil hearts presented to him, the celebration of self while oblivious of his presence, the subversion of his words in favor of alien theories, the moral corruption of his ministers, the complacency bordering on contempt for the sacrament of reconciliation, and the perfidious and unworthy reception of the Eucharist. In his recent letter, the now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI identifies the rejection of natural law reasoning as one of the root causes of the criminal immorality of an astounding number of Catholic priests. However, in writing, and I quote, only where faith no longer determines the actions of man are such offenses possible. In this, he points to a deeper crisis, which he calls the absence of God. This absence, he explains, results from the post-conciliar morality, which purported that each man could determine his purposes, create his own morality, and make himself the ultimate determined of right and wrong. This he called the apostasy of the autonomous man of conscience, who recognizes God's law only when it is in agreement with what he has decided and already wants to do. Thus we have a strange situation in a church without God at its center, where it is possible to belong without believing. And according to Benedict, this loss of faith is manifested by the manner in which many who belong to the church treat the most holy Eucharist. Our handling of the Eucharist can only arouse concern, he said. He goes on to identify the signs of this breakdown of faith and worship as, and I'm quoting, the declining participation in the Sunday Eucharist celebration shows how little we Christians of today still know about appreciating the greatness of the gift that consists in his real presence. The Eucharist is devalued into a mere ceremonial gesture when it is taken for granted that courtesy requires him to be offered at family celebrations or on occasions such as weddings and funerals to all those invited for family reasons. The way people often simply receive the sacrament in communion is a matter, of course, shows that many see communion as a purely ceremonial gesture. In saying that, it is rather obvious that we do not need another church of our own design. Benedict intimates that, in effect, an attempt is being made to reduce the Catholic religion into a kind of folkloric experience where the building of a community of benevolence and good feeling is celebrated. This mindset is particularly manifested 
when an invitation to receive Holy Communion is extended not only to the remarried divorcees, but also indiscriminately to everyone attending a funeral or a nuptial mass. The, in the innovative post-conciliar thinking about the Mass and the Eucharist has resulted, and I'm quoting Benedict again, not in a new reverence for the presence of Christ's death and resurrection, but a way of dealing with him that destroys the greatness of the mystery. Pope Benedict Emeritus used the word destroy. And in so doing, he's telling us that we are committing a sacrilege. We're destroying a sacred thing, or rather, to use the words of St. Paul, we are re-crucifying Christ again. So Benedict's use of the word destroy is telling and barely describes the total obliteration of all reverence for Christ's real presence among us. This widespread lack of reverence is systematic of a deep spiritual crisis, which of course, by its nature, is a personal experience. What is reverence? Reverence is that virtue which inclines one to show honor and respect to God, and by extension, to those in positions of authority. The foundation of Eucharistic reverence lies in the Catholic faith, which teaches the most blessed sacrament of the Holy Eucharist to be the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. And this is a dogmatic definition of the Council of Trent. It's also found in Canon 1374, the church also establishes the form of reverence, the form that reverence should take. A quote in again from the Code of Canon Law, 1378. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The code actually tells us we should genuflect. Of course, if one has a, a physical um, disability, a deep bow. Not a bow, but a deep bow. And it, it is an act, a personal act of adoration to our Lord, our God, our Savior. Yet, as we know, people walk past the tabernacle when they can see it, without the least effort to acknowledge the divine presence among us. Even so, some Catholics are lacking in due reverence for the Holy Eucharist because their Eucharistic faith is poor and full of defects and doubts. As Father mentioned earlier, they're not being taught. And the teaching does not, is not only by word of mouth, but also by the way we behave, by the way we ourselves 
reverence the Lord. People learn by observation, by seeing what other people do. So in a certain sense, all of us need to become teachers of others about the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. It is therefore important that since the priest's behavior influences the entire congregation, his gestures should be genuine manifestations of Eucharistic faith and love. And again, I celebrate both rites of Mass. Um, and when I celebrate with, I'm talking in the Caribbean, with um, deacons present, I deliberately look away when the, when the um, sacrament is being shared um, in, among several um, saboria. Because the saborium would be taken from the tabernacle, brought to the altar, and then you have the deacons just dropping their hands in it and just bringing up the hose and dropping it in another saboria. For me, I, I, I really feel like vomiting. I feel like leaving the altar. And yet, to say anything, it just creates even more tension. And I know the end effect will be I'll be, I'll, I'll be told not to celebrate Mass. So I, I look away and I make acts of reparation. But the, the, one of the things, if, if a person in a shop was selling sweets were to do that, what would be the reaction of the customer? And yet you can do it with the, the Blessed Sacrament. So again, when we see things happening in the sanctuary around the altar we don't like, we can make acts of reparation and offer the Lord an apology for these people who are acting out of ignorance, um, let's say out of ignorance. So the priest then has uh, an important role to play and has the responsibility of being as reverent as possible because in this way he's teaching his flock. The congregation's manner of showing reverence is equally important and is ordinarily manifested by their punctual, recollected, and prayerful participation at Mass. Since we are body and soul, our reverence for Jesus in the Holy Eucharist has to show itself also in gestures, such as genuflection before the tabernacle on entry and on exit, genuflection where prescribed by the liturgical books, genuflection or bow at the reception of Holy Communion. Congregational reference, reverence is further enhanced by music of theological, liturgical, and aesthetic beauty and depth rather than by trite and banal productions. And of course, this is where many of us, many churches, um, parish churches, fall short because what is presented uh, in music for liturgy is just not suitable. The centrality of the tabernacle contained in the sacramental presence of God-made man, as well as a clean and well-maintained sanctuary, aesthetic liturgical vestments, and a respectful posture for all those ministering around the altar, create an atmosphere of reverence. 
While participating in casual banter before mass diminishes one's reverence for the Eucharist, the lack of adequate spiritual preparation for receiving Holy Communion destroys it. Although the reverence to our Lord present in the Holy Eucharist can be shown in various ways, the most important reverential attitude is, in fact, to be in a state of grace. Pope Emeritus lamented the fact that so many receive our Lord in a state of mortal sin. And this is the highest, the worst form of, of, of um, insult we could offer him. The 1983 Code of Canon Law clearly states that individual and integral confession and absolution are the sole ordinary means by which the faithful, conscious of grave sin, are reconciled with God and the church. Only physical or moral impossibility excuses from such confession, in which case reconciliation can be obtained in other ways, and that is Canon 960. So then we need to recognize that we are not giving the Lord the reverence that is his due because we do not recognize that he is present. Now, when we look at it from a human perspective, if, for instance, Her Majesty the Queen should appear at the door, what would we do? We would automatically stand. We wouldn't think about it. If the cardinal were to come in, we would stand, would we not? Or the archbishop? Because we are acknowledging their office. And in the second degree, we are acknowledging their person. But it's the office, first and foremost, that we acknowledge. And we are speaking of someone whose office is supreme, the creator of heaven and earth, who has condescended to be among us. Therefore, we should give him that reverence. We bow, we genuflect. And above all, in our hearts, we acknowledge, we thank him for condescending to be with us. Think of Peter when he made the catch of fish. He fell on his knees. Depart from me, O Lord, a sinner. I am a sinner. Depart from me. So, because we, as Pope Benedict said, because we have lost faith, and in particular, faith in the Eucharist, and that has come about because we have handled it um, irreverently, we have found ourselves in a state of crisis. Our Lord, in his missionary life, went through many crises. But what was the first crisis mentioned? In Scripture, we, we read, Christ faced several crises during his public ministry. The dispute over his doctrine 
of the bread of life being the most salient. The crisis arose after he had fed the multitude of 5,000 men, not counting women and children, so we can estimate a crowd of 50, 60,000, perhaps more. He fed that multitude with five loaves and two fish and taught them the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood as being the precondition for eternal life. Appalled at this doctrine, the crowd walked away, saying, this is intolerable language. Who can accept it? The Lord made no attempt to reconcile the crowd by modifying his teaching. He watched them go. He didn't say, I was joking, or you misunderstood. I didn't quite mean what you think I meant. I was talking symbolically. He didn't say any of that. He just watched them walk away. He turned to the twelve and asked, Will you also go away? Simon Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Does that sound like a man who understood? The validity of Simon Peter's response is as weighty today as it was 2,000 years ago. With the church in crisis, to whom shall we go? As Christ alone has the words of eternal life, so today his church alone can speak in his name. And consequently, she alone has the words of eternal life. Although the church currently faces a crisis of episcopal nonfiance, malfiance, and mismanagement, a crisis of priestly formation, spiritual fatherhood, clericalism, and the abuse of power, a crisis that has cultural and social influences, spiritual causes, psychological complexities, and a crisis brought about and exacerbated by unchastity of all kinds, it may be that the crisis actually lies in the heart of individual Catholics rather than in the church. We know that the church will remain until our Lord returns. He has promised us that. But we, who are members of the church, we have no such guarantee that we will persevere to the end. We work towards it, we hope for it, and we depend on God's grace. And so the crisis really is personal. It's my crisis and it's your crisis. It is the crisis of the members of the church. Christ not only founded his church on rock, but declared the impotency of the gates of hell against it and promised his church both his abiding presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit until the end of time. He also warned that scandals were sure to come, Luke 17.1, and that those persevering to the end would be saved. Scandal. 
the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines scandal as an attitude or behavior which leads another person to do evil. The person who gives scandal becomes his neighbor's tempter. He damages virtue and integrity. He may even draw his brother into spiritual death. Scandal is a grave offense if, by deed or omission, another is deliberately led into a grave offense. And that's section 2284. So you can see priests and deacons who misbehave in the sanctuary at the altar, who by their behavior show that they do not believe Christ to be truly present, and who lead the congregation into believing the same are guilty of scandal. People who communicate and do so flippantly, badly, leading others to do the same are cause of scandal. And as priests, we can give many examples of this. You know, the, uh, I've seen someone, for instance, who received the Holy Communion in his hand, and he tossed it in the air, caught it in the other, and popped it in his mouth. You know, you, you think... All, all you can do is make acts of reparation. There's nothing else. But... When we see behavior like this, we should be genuinely grieved by it. The Catechism further teaches that scandal takes on a particular gravity by reason of the authority of those who cause it or the weakness of those who are scandalized. It prompted our Lord to utter this curse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18.6 Scandal is grave when given by those who, by nature or office, are obliged to teach and educate others. In particular, the Catechism warns that anyone who uses the power at his disposal in such a way that it leads others to do wrong becomes guilty of scandal and responsible for the evil he has directly or indirectly encouraged. The Lord tells us, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe, by him, but woe to him by whom they come. And of course, when we um, read and when we hear of the atrocities committed by priests, we, we can only tremble. Because how will they stand before the Lord, having led little ones into sin? And then when we go up and have bishops doing so, and even cardinals, we think, how, what, what excuse, if it's possible, there's no excuse, what, what can they say before the Lord? But it's not sufficient yet to think, what will they say? We ourselves have to ask, what will I say? Because we also are responsible for the, for the um, orbit in which we have been placed. For what we have said and what we have done, we can also lead others into sin. So we should use all of these things that happen around us as warnings. 
and not to think, we must never think, of sin by degrees. Sin is a serious offense against God. And each and every one of us has to answer for what we have done. It doesn't help to think that there's someone in a deeper part of hell than you are. It doesn't help at all. You know, we have to think we must ensure that we don't go to that place, as Our Lady told the children. A good example, we're talking about scandal, the way we behave, how it can impact on others. A very good example is found in the second book of Maccabees, chapter 6. The background is this. The, the Greeks were forcing the Jews to apostatize. They were insisting, as a sign of their apostasy, that the Jews eat pig flesh, swine. And some were doing it. And if they, they said, if I didn't do it, I'll lose my home, I'll lose my family, I'll lose my life. And what's eating a little pig's flesh? So what? What's the big deal? Aren't we tempted similarly? What's it matter if you miss Sunday Mass once in a while? Does it really matter whether you genuflect or not? Is it such a big sin to not to observe the fast, the one-hour fast before communion? This is such a big deal. And so it's the little thing. In fact, the scripture tells us that little drops wear away great stones. Drip, 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 day after day, and the stone is gone. So here were the Greeks forcing the, the Jews to eat pig's flesh. There was um, a man, 90-year-old, um, well-respected, Eliezer, and he was being asked to eat pig's flesh and refused, and they were threatened to torture him. His friends had compassion on him and said, look, we prepare some meat, or you can prepare it yourself, that's acceptable, and you can pretend that it's, it's pork. So, so you wouldn't have broken the law technically, and the Greeks would think that you had eaten um, pork, and we would all be happy, and we can carry on with our lives. Good solution. So we have a good example of the obligation avoid, to avoid giving scandal in this story from Second Maccabees. Eliezer wished to avoid any behavior that could be interpreted as sinful. He wanted to avoid any behavior that could be interpreted as sinful. And therefore, refused to adopt the suggestion made to him of secretly eating meat which was allowed, though he seemed to be eating swine's flesh. Everyone would have thought he had eaten the forbidden meat, and, as he himself said, he would have thus given a bad example to all the Jews, and especially to the young. This act would also have drawn others into transgressing the law and denying their faith. Because they would have said, look, Eliezer, 
90 years old. He did it. Eliezer, by his age, was a person of authority. He was an example to follow. So Eliezer then would have given scandal and also sinned against the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Since he would have drawn by his example many others into sin. So he refused and of course he was beaten to death. Didn't we? Today's the feast of the English and Welsh martyrs. Wasn't something similar presented to them? The king is supreme. Just agree to that. All England agrees, Thomas. You're the only one disagreeing. Come with us, they said, for friendship's sake. So there are principles which, to which we must hold fast and we should not by any means relinquish. Not the slightest dot, not a tittle. Catholics are generally better able to enjoy the assaults of the world than to tolerate the scandal of clergy whose worldly, evil, and immoral lives make a mockery of God's law and by bad example lead the little ones astray. And we think of St. John Fisher. The fort is betrayed by the very ones who should have defended it. It was the lower, interestingly, it's the lower clergy, for the most part, who resisted the unjust um, uh, attacks of the king. And from this we learn something very important. Those who have little to lose are very reluctant to lose their souls as well. It's obvious that a profound disorientation has entered into the church and has manifested itself in doctrinal confusion, in an attitude of moral laxity, and even of criminal sexual abuse. The lack of spiritual formation of sound doctrinal teaching, of aesthetic forms of worship, of transparency, of accountability, and of apostolic zeal have shaken the faith of the Catholic faithful who now question the authority of churchmen to speak and, even worse, of the church itself to teach. We, by God's grace, by his favor, nothing we've done, belong to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the Apostles' Creed, we profess belief in the holy Catholic church. In these tumultuous times, it is crucial to understand in what way the Catholic Church is holy. Holiness implies nearness to God, the author and the source of all holiness. The Catholic Church's holiness springs from Jesus Christ, her founder and head, who is God, the infinite source of all holiness, and from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it also comes from an intimate union with Christ as his bride and his mystical body. The Catholic Church is holy not because there are no sinners within her fold, but because Christ founded her for the sole purpose of reproducing his holiness in her children.
Thus, the ideal she presents to the world in her authentic and definitive teachings is, is identical with that which Christ presented. Consequently, in order that her children possess the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, she has preserved the entire gospel of Christ uncorrupted. Likewise, she has always faithfully interpreted the commandments and the counsels of Christ the Savior, who invites his followers to seek perfection. Again, she has always infallibly provided her children with the means of grace instituted by Christ himself in the sacrifice of the Mass and in the seven sacraments. These are the ordinary means by which the precious blood of Christ shed upon the cross is applied today to individuals for their sanctification and redemption. Christ came to call not the virtuous, but sinners to repentance. Hence, his church, the Catholic Church, cannot be a church of the elect or of the sinless, nor can it be an exclusive club of the outwardly respectable and the well-to-do. Christ's church is not a hotel for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Clasping them to her bosom, the church, although holy because her life is that of Christ himself, nonetheless is always in need of purification because of her human members. It follows then that the holiness of Catholics is in direct proportion to their faithful acceptance of the church's doctrines, their faithful observance of her commandments and counsels, their faithful attendance at Holy Mass, and their frequent reception of the sacraments. When critics of the Catholic Church point scornfully at the transgressors within her fold, they merely identify those Catholics who disobey her laws and neglect and perhaps even abuse her sacraments. These, however, are wayward Catholics who have strayed from Christ and, consequently, they are neither normative of those belonging to the Catholic Church, nor do they impair the Church's ability to sanctify her members. Furthermore, the accusations of the Church's critics can only be valid if the Church's authentic teachings supported the sinful behavior of her transgressing members, which is definitely not the case. And the, 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 um, the, the story we heard of the priest who was um, drunk in, in Venice and how um, Cardinal Roncalli took him aside and went to confession is, is a very good example of this. A priest always remains a priest, no matter how much of a criminal he is. And his, he criminal that he may be, sinner that he is, he can still absolve and he can still make Christ present on the altar. The, um, there are many places, in fact, in Mexico, during the persecutions in the, in the 1930s, there were priests who, simply because of the persecutions, had fallen by the wayside, you know. And yet, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember Green, I'm trying to remember his name, 
Graham Greene, yes, in his um, famous book, I've forgotten the title, um, The Power and the Glory. He, he speaks of this priest who um, is an alcoholic and so on, yet when he came, comes into the village, people welcome him as if it were Christ himself. They were so glad that he had come. At least he could forgive their sins. And the other thing we remember as priests, we are not made priests for ourselves. I can't forgive myself my sins. We are priests for Christ's faithful, for you. So um, I'm asking you to pray for priests, to pray for all of us, to pray for our bishops, and to pray for our Pope. The, <clears throat> Again, in his letter, the Pope Emeritus reminds us that Christ himself compared the church to a fishing net in which good and bad fish are ultimately separated by God himself. There is also the parable of the church as a field on which the good grain that God himself has sown grows, but also the weeds that the enemy secretly sown onto it. Indeed, the weeds in God's field, the church, are excessively visible, and the evil fish in the net also show their strength. Nevertheless, the field is still God's field, and the net is God's fishing net. And at all times, there are not only the weeds and the evil fish, but also the crops of God and the good fish. To proclaim both with emphasis is not false form of apologetics, but a necessary service to the truth. And Pope Benedict Emeritus has really put it very well as he does everything. So we remember that the net is God's, the field is God's, the church is God's, and that good and bad are contained. And sometimes the good shines more than the bad, and conversely. Sadly, in our times, it's the converse. Criticisms are leveled not only at the church's transgressive members, but also at her moral teaching, which are regarded as being either too high or unrealistic. The substance of the church's moral doctrine is clearly established by Jesus Christ, who declared that even a lustful look was adulterous. The church invites her members to imitate the life of Christ. This life expresses itself in good works, in self-sacrifice, in love of suffering, and especially in the practice of the three evangelical counsels of perfection, namely voluntary poverty, perfect chastity, and entire obedience. In this, the church proposes for members the divine ideal. The church, the mystical body of Christ, possesses the holy mass by which Christ's sacrifice upon the cross is renewed daily upon our altars. By baptism, Catholics are united to Christ as the branches united to the vine, and grace is infused into their souls so that they become partakers of the divine nature. By the other sacraments, this personal union is strengthened, deepened, and intensified. This is especially true in Holy Communion, where a Catholic is most intimately joined to Christ in fulfillment of his promise that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will share his divine life. And so to conclude, why remain Catholic? Christ came to call sinners to repentance. He founded this church as a place of safety where sinners would have access to the means of salvation. As waves of unbelief, of rebellion, of hubris, and even and of immorality sweep over our world and even threaten the very bastions of faith, 
Our hope lies in the promise that where sin abounds, grace is even greater. In this regard, the Pope Emeritus tells us that the idea of a better church created by ourselves is in fact a proposal of the devil with which he wants to lead us away from the living God through a deceitful logic by which we are too easily duped. No, even today, the church is not just made up of bad fish and weeds. The church of God also exists today, and today it is the very instrument through which God saves us. It is very important to oppose the lies and half-truths of the devil with the whole truth. Yes, there is sin in the church and evil, but even today there is in the Holy Church which is indestructible. The solution to the crisis rocking the church and each human member lies in the heart of the church, in the Holy Eucharist. Recording St. John Bosco's dream of the great ship, I do not believe the storm will abate, nor will the crisis pass until Catholics, collectively and individually, once more recognize, acknowledge, honor, and reverence Christ's Eucharistic presence hidden in the church's tabernacles. In this present deluge of evil, let us hearken to the Benedictine call for a renewed faith. That is, what is required first and foremost is the renewal of the faith in the reality of Jesus Christ given to us in the Blessed Sacrament. In the present crisis, the Catholic Church is the only place of spiritual safety, similar to the houses of the Israelites in Egypt on the night of the first Passover. The destroying angel traversed the land of Egypt, visiting death on every house, except those where the Paschal lamb was being eaten. We likewise should take warning in these days of crisis, and despite every temptation to the contrary, holding fast to the authentic Catholic faith, which includes being ready to die for Christ as a price of fidelity to him, remain in the Catholic Church, in which alone the Paschal Lamb is found and eaten. Thank you. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today.